0: These are The Oldest Stories, online at oldeststories.net. Last week, we began the decline of Isin and looked at the increasingly chaotic Sumer that rises in its wake. We saw many campaigns and victories and defeats, but so often the scribes tell us nothing other than so-and-so defeated the enemy, or, as is often the case in this period, don't tell us anything at all. Covered up by this summary or ignoring is quite a lot of effort, expense, suffering, and blood. I want to take this episode as an opportunity to look at literally the only battle for which we have any specifics at all from the last episode, an incident during Gungunum's first campaign against Issen. To reset the stage, in case you missed last episode or just forgot, Issen is a declining power under King Lipit ishtar a peaceful king from a long line of peaceful kings. Gungunum has just come off a smashingly successful campaign against the Elamites, despite having nothing but the resources of a middle-tier or possibly lower city of Larsa, and pivoted to take Ur and is now driving deeper into Isin's territory at this point we have a pair of letters that have survived to and from lipit ishtar the first coming from his general nana kiag the letter is short at least the surviving bit and can be read in full speak to my lord this is what nana kiag the general your servant says Edana, the high temple in Ur, has turned against my lord. Lord Atamanum has made six hundred troops of Gungunum enter into Edana. I would not allow these troops to enter old Anna, my town. They camped instead in Erie Gibel, the neighboring town. The troops of Gungunum have come from the banks of the Id Amr watercourse in order to build a siege camp to make Dunham ready and to... The rest of this part is unclear. If my lord does not send crews of highlanders, bows, arrows, small boats, fishermen, and so forth, there tied up leather sacks, weapons and implements, the armaments of battle, then the enemy troops will construct brick structures by the banks of the Idz-Amar-Suenna watercourse and dig a canal. They should not be neglectful, my lord. It is urgent. Sadly, there is quite a lot that has become obscure in this message, but clearly Gungunum is moving on Nanakiak's position. He has stopped them at the banks of some minor tributary of the Euphrates, but the warlord is unfazed and content to build siege equipment on the far bank, which he will likely transfer by boat during the main assault. With this outbreak of violence, which is about to become a region-wide period of conflict, we can see that the Amorites are no mere barbarians, whether they started out that way or not. They have adopted the advanced siege warfare techniques that have been around since the rise of the Akkadian Empire, including the construction of battering rams and siege towers. We can't know what Gungunum is building here specifically, but we know that at this time, siege engineering was fairly well advanced, and while it was still valuable to to have high and strong walls around a city, walls alone would not have been able to ward off conquerors for a few hundred years at this point. As to what kind of troops were standing on each side, Lipidishtar's reply is revealing. Say to Nanakiag, the general, this is what Lipid ishtar your lord, says. Because of enemy troops, I, the king, have sent you a letter. Atamanum, who pleases his lord, is a better servant to his lord than you. Why is it that you have not been avenging your lord? Why not keeping me informed? While I have kept the soldiers loyal, you have not stationed them among these people? So now you are to station your troops there. Now, I have sent to you in haste 2,000 soldiers who are spear-throwers, 2,000 soldiers who are archers, and 2,000 soldiers who are double-axe-wielders. The enemy has camped down in Erie Gible. Chase them away from those settlements. Guard each city. Do not let these cities out of your grasp. Station your people. It is urgent." The plot seems confused here now. Did Atamanum let the enemy into Ur, or did he remain faithful? Perhaps lipit ishtar is glad for Atamanum's resistance even if he failed, rather than Nanakiag's indecisiveness? Additionally, this whole exchange seems to say that Gungunum successfully took Ur as early as his fifth year, while scholars have other reasons to think he didn't take it until his seventh or tenth year. Additionally, the actual location of this battle is also unclear since none of the place names given have ever been definitively identified, and could be in the south between Issen and Ur, or could be in the north, approaching the critical city of Nippur. Whatever is happening politically, the scale and type of reinforcements gives us a window into the Amorite way of warfare. 6,000 soldiers, evenly divided between archers, javelin throwers, and axemen. If we assume that Nanaki Ag already has an existing force in position, likely a militia of the local towns, then he should already be in command of a number of spearmen. Likely he was facing a very similar army across the river, as Gungudam prepared to cross and assault his town. We have no details from this battle. We don't even know who won this particular engagement, though in the end of the campaign Gungunum was driven back. If you will allow me a bit of poetic license, we have enough secondary evidence to suggest that the face of battle has changed somewhat since the armies that brought the Akkadian Empire to prominence. And so, let me sketch out how this battle may well have looked as a sort of stand-in for Amorite battles in general, focusing on the details that we do know from sources such as art, archaeology, and the very few written records that have survived to the present about the business of Middle Bronze Age battles. I should begin with the limitations, particularly in this era, to figure out what was going on. In all times, scribes were uninterested in the details of battle, preferring in nearly all cases to simply record that, by the grace of the gods, one king emerged victorious. Additionally, While art depicting soldiers was almost certainly still produced, around this point in time, the preferred art style seems to have shifted from engravings in clay or stone to painted frescoes, which are much less likely to have survived over the millennia. With that in mind, let us return to the battle. Armies in this period came from three main sources, two of which we can see directly and a third which can be inferred. First, the backbone of any armed force would be a militia of the city's citizens, armed primarily as a block of spearmen. Each year, every household owed as a part of their taxes a certain number of days' labor to the king, typically two to three months. And while most years this was spent on building projects, since the earliest days of recorded history, rulers have also been using these men as seasonal army levies. And I do mean since the earliest days, since this was the sort of soldier King Enmerkar would have been using as part of his Arata campaign, circa 3000 BCE, back in episodes 1 and 2. Pretty much the only thing which has changed in a thousand years is that now it is much more common for the city to have a collective armory with which to outfit its men, though bringing your own equipment was still much encouraged in many areas. Ag likely had the local militia of iri Sag'ana, since, though the region was small, the men could likely be called up in defense of their land, even outside of the usual tax obligation. Gungunum, similarly, would be bringing a corps of citizens from Larsa. The second source was the innovation of the Acadians, the professional, year-round standing army this would have been the source of the reinforcements that the king is sending to Nanakiag in the letter. And the general would have had a certain sized force himself, with these being the troops that the king reprimands Nanakiag for not quartering among the civilians. With a professional force, obviously the standards of training and equipment could be higher. Additionally, under some kings, there is evidence of the troops being divided into specialized units, like archers or engineers. These professionals would mostly be used as garrisons or as a year-round raiding and protection force to defend against small raids and nomad tribes wandering in where they weren't supposed to, though they could well have been used to pacify the cities they were garrisoning as well, reminding the locals who was in charge. The most prosperous cities, however, don't seem to have ever had more than a few thousand professionals, and though they are called that, there is some indication that this force may have been rotated in and out of service for periods of time to allow them a family life. All this taken together means that in a large battle or campaign, their ranks would need to be swelled by conscript militias. The third source of troops is the most recent to see common employment, these being Amorite mercenaries. Nearly every nomadic Amorite tribe in this period appears to have made a living partially off pastoralism and partly from banditry, with some being more peaceful, while others, led by more martial chiefs, coming to specialize in the more violent aspects of their society. However, the various kings of the age, most of them being Amorites themselves, knew that as long as they got money and honorable combat, these tribes were generally unconcerned about where it came from, and so, if a king paid them money, the nomadic raiders could often be convinced to fight alongside the city. Multiple variations of this arrangement existed along a spectrum of power dynamics, from nomads extorting payment from smaller towns as protection money, all the way to the most powerful kings offering wealth and patronage to rather more obscure nomad troops, elevating a tribe that would otherwise be rather poor. The jobs these nomads were asked to do could vary from just continuing to raid but doing it in someone else's territory, all the way to joining a campaign as auxiliary forces. These nomad mercenaries would travel to battle in the same way as they traveled anywhere else, on foot with their full family and herd of animals in tow. Despite this, they remained surprisingly quick for the era and were frequently capable of strategically outmaneuvering the city militias, often striking and vanishing before a response could be brought together. It's thought by some that it was a combination of raiding and mercenary work that made these nomads the dominant force in the region, and the region why so many Amorite <coughs> and the reason why so many Amorite dynasties arise in this era. But because of how many different ways there are for the power dynamics and cultures of the different groups to interact, it's impossible to say in any particular instance how or if nomad mercenaries were employed in any army. That said... If they were engaged as part of a battle, it would likely be as archers or light infantry, since while the tactics of the shield wall seem to have evolved a bit during Amorite times, it seems to have been principally the men of the cities, using these more stable formations, with the Amorite tribes being renowned for flexibility and ferocity more than discipline. We have no way of knowing the composition of Gungunam's army here, except that it almost certainly contained contingents of professional and levy troops, and may or may not have included mercenary auxiliaries. Given his newfound wealth, though, and the smaller size of the city of Larsa, mercenary tribesmen seem fairly likely. Whatever the size of his army, Gungunum would have begun each stage of the campaign by loading his soldiers on boats. These would have been small and canoe-shaped, made of woven reeds, like giant boat-shaped wicker baskets. These were propelled by sail and oar, usually equipped with both for use depending on conditions. These have not changed much since 7,000 BCE, and are claimed by some to be the oldest boats in the world, though in truth, there is evidence for boats among many pre-Stone Age cultures, and even among the pre-human species Homo erectus. In any case, Gungunum's army would have been accompanied by dozens or possibly even a few hundred boats, ferrying supplies as the army marched, or possibly even bringing the army by river to the battle site. Today, however, they're not going far, just to the opposite bank of this tributary. It would have been risky for Nanaki Ag to allow this crossing to go unchallenged, and would have put his 2,000 archers and 2,000 javelinmen in position to launch arrows and spears at the soldiers in the boat. Those were just the reinforcements, though, and he likely had a fair number of javelinmen and archers, as well as perhaps a number of slingers for himself. The slingers appear to have been a bit less common in this era, though whether they were less common in professional armies or less popular in the era in general is unclear. The javelins would have been fairly long maybe a good four feet long, made of wood with a metal tip, and heavy enough that if one hit you, it was going to do serious damage, though of course the range is limited by the strength of an arm. The archers would have had greater range, firing typically composite bows made of horn, wood, and glue that were very sensitive to humidity, but of course had no problem in arid Mesopotamia. Self-bows, made entirely of a single piece of wood, were much more rugged and reliable, and thus still in use by many, but they were larger as well, and thus less favored by the more mobile Amorite armies. Slingers, if either side had them, used a strip of rope or cloth to spin a bullet, typically a small round rock or piece of lead, and when one side of the rope is released, the bullet would fly free with the extra lever of both arm and string to give it additional velocity. We may think of them as a child's toy now, but a real sling can do serious damage and even kill if it hits right. On the receiving end, Gungunum's troops were protected by armor and shield. Increasingly in this period, we see very tall shields, the full height of a man, that are rested on the ground while held by a shield-bearer. The tops of these shields curved inwards to protect the head from angled arrow fire. Most would be made of woven reeds, possibly hardened strips of linen or leather on the top, and maybe wood for the frame, though this is debated given the scarcity of wood in the region. Very rarely, probably only for the wealthiest, would a shield of any sort be covered with a thin layer of copper or bronze. These tall tower shields could be deployed in two-man teams, with a spear-armed shield-bearer holding the shield for an archer standing behind, or in pitched battle as the front rake in a wall formation. There also existed smaller round shields, perhaps two feet in diameter, but while they existed before and after the period, they seemed to be poorly attested in this particular time frame. Still, they would have served the same general purposes as shields everywhere and been constructed in much the same fashion as the tall tower shields. The men in the boats would also receive a measure of protection from their own skirmishers returning fire, keeping the enemy archers from getting too close. At the individual level, each man would be wearing a copper or bronze helmet that was pointed at the top, both to deflect missile fire and for the psychological advantage of appearing taller than the enemy. The general style of cap was the same as was used in Akkadian times and would continue to be the primary source of personal protection throughout the Bronze Age. Sometimes artists will depict soldiers wearing a much more rounded cap that hugged the skull, forming what looks like a thick band around the forehead. But this is likely a cloth cap often worn by everyone, civilian and military, and would have served no military purpose. For covering the body in general, no examples of body armor appear to have survived to this day, and so the composition is debated. It could be that people went into battle wearing their normal linen tunic, which naturally covered shoulder to knee, or... This could be a full-length linen body armor made of multiple linen strips glued together over time that produced a stiff and surprisingly puncture-resistant material useful against glancing blows and slower arrows and sling bullets. The landing was a risky time in any amphibious assault, but the river here is small and calm, and the boats are plentiful and low to the ground, making a mass disembarkation relatively simple for a disciplined group. With the rear boats serving as archery platforms, the enemy may have decided it was too risky to attack during the brief window before Gungunum's men had formed up. Or perhaps they did attack and this is where Gungunum was defeated, but let us carry our generic example battle into the next phase, that of a straight-up land battle. On the open field, the array on each side would have been rather similar, generally speaking. In the front row is a line of shield bearers. Maybe they were moved from duty protecting the archers to protecting the front line of the spear formation. Or maybe this is a second set of shield bearers. The very long spears of the earlier period have shortened, possibly to increase mobility, with spears that appear to be Maybe five or six feet long. Only the first two or three rows will be able to engage should it come to a hoplite style shoving match. It is likely, however, that despite the shield walls, formations were looser in this era, since there are more descriptions of light infantry styles carrying hand weapons like axes, early swords, and kingly maces. Perhaps a formation would have a phalanx-style corps with lighter infantry on the flanks, but anything that gets into that much detail is pure speculation at this point. With the formations assembled on both sides, the main threat was missile fire, since the archers and javelin men have not stopped firing into the block of enemy soldiers, who are advancing carefully behind their shields. Each soldier, spearman or not, carries some sort of sidearm, and there was a wide variety available. Axes were very popular, being widely used in civilian trades of all sorts, and the curved sickle sword appears to have slowly trickled in from Canaan. Daggers and very short straight swords are options, and the enduring symbol of the mace remains reserved for kings and possibly high commanders as well. Whichever sidearm the soldier chose, it would rest at the hip and be drawn when the enemy came too close for spear or arrow, or when the primary weapon failed. The spear wall remained the primary formation, but should an enemy break that front wall, the men behind were ready to hack a lone enemy apart with axes. Additionally, in many of the smaller engagements that didn't rise to the level of the pitched battle, those sidearms would see constant use. One caveat to this is that for the first time, in art and descriptions, we start to see mentions of men wielding two one-handed weapons instead of a spear. This is new to the Amorite period, and while some dismiss it as artistic fancy, a way of showing a warrior so wealthy he could carry two sidearms into battle, or perhaps meant to abstract the idea that many different weapons were in use by the army, or... Even they're just putting it in the art because it looks cool, the way modern art and video games show off dual-wielding warriors. However, some have suggested that there really were specialist, dual-wielding light infantry detachments, possibly meant as flanking units to outmaneuver the main spear block, or as shock troops to punch a hole in a formation, and that this is what is meant by lipit Ishtar's brief mention of sending 2,000 double axe-wielders. Of course, there are plenty of people, both scholars and less scholarly, online who will tell you that dual-wielding weapons is useless and ahistorical, so at the end it may or may not be the case. Perhaps they were dual-wielding, and perhaps it is artistic fancy. Altogether, A battle in this era could run anywhere from one or two thousand on each side, or indeed as small as you care to imagine for the most minor of scouting and raiding parties, all the way up to fifteen or twenty thousand in an army, though marching an army of tens of thousands in this age would have been a strain on any city. Given that Lipit Ishtar has sent about 6,000 men as reinforcements, we could guess that Nanakiag brings a total of perhaps eight to 16,000, with Gungunam about the same, though probably on the lower end for both, making this a decently sized engagement indeed for the time. But the battle isn't just a clash of infantry in this age. We have no mention of it in this battle, and to be sure they weren't always present. But in the right circumstances, the noble chariot is the king of the Bronze Age battlefield. You may recall that early in the Sumerian period, they rode proto-chariots called battle wagons, which were essentially that, four-wheeled wagons with a few men in them. They were versatile, serving as either mobile platforms for javelinmen or as thundering heavy chargers, breaking lines and crushing men beneath the weight of hoof and wheel. But in those days, the horse hadn't been introduced to Mesopotamia, and as such, the battle wagons of old were pulled by a breed of wild donkey called the onager. They were not very fast and not very strong, but they were still enough to make the Sumerian battle cart feared on the battlefield. However, thanks to their expense and unwieldiness, the Akkadians, or at least Sargon, seemed to have disfavored the battle wagon, and they fell out of use for a time. Perhaps later Akkadian kings employed them, but for sure the kings of the Sumerian Renaissance did. And it was mostly invisible in that period, but they began to innovate on the old chassis, changing the wheels from blocks of wood to the newly invented rim and spoke wheel that we usually think of when visualizing a chariot, and reducing the number of wheels from four to two, a change made possible by the new fixed yokes. This made the chariot much more agile, since the turning radius is substantially smaller for a two-wheeled vehicle, and being made lighter, the same animals would be able to pull the chariot longer and faster. It still isn't clear if the Middle Bronze Age chariot was meant for charging enemy troops, but it was definitely a mobile archery platform and a mount for dueling other chariots or riding down fleeing soldiers. It also isn't clear if it's still being pulled by onagers, since there appears to be some debate as to when the first horses were introduced into the region. In Central Asia, the horse has definitely been domesticated by now, but some think that only the first smallest proto-horses are being hitched to these new proper chariots, while others think that it's still onagers or some other donkey breed. We are still 400 years away from the proper introduction of real horses, though, so either way, they're still being pulled by something smaller than what you would normally imagine when you think of a chariot. Finally, the lines collide in a proper pitched battle. This was a relatively rare occurrence, even the most ambitious and warlike commanders rarely see more than a few dozen battles in their entire career, and the majority of men never see more than ten in their lifetime, with skirmish, maneuver, logistics, and sieges deciding most wars. And indeed, in our model battle, Nanakiag may well have pulled into a small-walled city or fortress, or Gungunam could have seen that with the Issen reinforcements, his position was no longer tenable and returned home. Still, a pitched battle makes for the best drama, so we'll carry our imaginations to the heat and fury of lines colliding. Organized melee warfare has been more or less completely dead for 300 years in the West, and in only that short amount of time, it seems that humanity has forgotten what exactly a pitched battle looked like on the ground, with historians proposing a number of different historical models for different times and places. One model, which we could call the Spearwall Push model, was presented in the episode Kings and Wars in Lagash, and is based off a model focused on fairly heavy spear units like Bronze Aged Hoplites, which I interpreted to be a good analog for the spear formations of the early dynastic period. For a period of lighter infantry, there is much less certainty for how a battle would look. The fundamental problem is this. Every account of warfare, ancient or modern, agrees that fighting is intense. The blood of every participant is up, and they are all exerting their utmost. However, ancient accounts also tend to state that most battles last for hours, sometimes even days, which is a problem. Human endurance simply doesn't last for hours or days. Modern MMA fighters, with all the benefits of modern training and fitness, can go three to five five five-minute rounds with breaks in between, and at the end, each man is utterly exhausted. How, then, do we resolve this? The Romans famously developed a technique to seamlessly switch out the front row of fighters in a legion, but this is nearly 2,000 years away. If we assume that each soldier managed their endurance by pacing themselves, rather like a modern soccer player, then we need to posit a certain amount of distance from the enemy. In this model, there was no literal crash, Except perhaps at the very beginning of engagement following a charge, which would be followed by perhaps a foot or two of middle space, where a man could, with relative safety, hide behind his shield and occasionally jab out a spear, hoping to catch an exhausted or unwary man doing the same thing on the opposite side. In this vision of battle... It is a long, grueling game, where the man in front cannot go too far back because the men behind keep him engaged, but you can only get as close as his personal bravery and the bravery of those around him allows. You can imagine yourself right at the wall of spear tips, feeling the impact knocking against your tall shield. Your head is down as much from exhaustion as from fear of the enemy's weapons. You've been thrusting your spear for an hour now, accomplishing essentially nothing. You punched a hole in the shield across from you ten minutes ago, and that gave you a surge of energy. But it didn't penetrate very deep, and the other man didn't even cry out, and your enthusiasm has melted away under the Mesopotamian sun. You're a farmer most of the year, but in the field, you work at a steady pace, and you would never wear this stupid metal hat that weighs heavily on your brow, roasting the air just above your shaved head like a tiny oven just for the top of your skull. The men behind you are no help. They keep shoving and thrusting their own spears, even though the enemy is usually not even in reach. The man to one side, really just a boy, keeps going into frantic fits, poking his spear over and over while screaming for minutes at a time before growing exhausted and still for a time. You know he's just psyching himself up for the next brief moment of heroism. The fool thinks Ninurta himself is guiding the spear, but you're just a bit older and far wiser, knowing to trust your personal deity. Your personal god may be lower in rank, but he's guarded your household since your great-grandfather's time and has kept you safe throughout this campaign so far. From time to time, you can feel the pressure of men behind you shift as an arrow or javelin hits home and the rear men move forward to take the missing place. Or perhaps right along the shield wall, a spear catches some fool in the face and someone must move to grab the shield before a breach forms in the line. Then, to your left, unexpected movement catches your eye. Without warning, the enemy's shields part, and men carrying axes pour out. Amorite mercenaries, from the looks of them, the ignorant nomads who disdain the prosperity of settled life and settled gods. Someone is shouting something, but it can barely be heard. The noise of battle deafened you long ago, but even if it hadn't, the new burst of shouting more than drowns out whatever commands are being issued. Still, there isn't much for you to do but hold in your place. As you watch, the first man charging the line is tripped by a spear, and another trips on him, and both are quickly speared, but the rest of the axemen push through. You can't tell if they take more wounds, and suddenly your drifting mind is brought back into focus as an enemy's spear nearly knocks off your helmet. You haven't got a free hand to right it, and it sits uncomfortably lopsided on your head as you return your focus to your position. You can't help but notice the sounds where the enemy had charged, though, and it sounds like maybe things are okay there. You can't really see in your few stolen glances down the line. Maybe it's still a bit chaotic, and our line is definitely bowed away, but there's still pressure at your back. The men behind you are standing firm, as are the men behind them. "'You take comfort in the comrades of your city. "'Waves of exhaustion collapse over you "'as the crisis of the moment passes, "'but you still give all your flagging strength "'into holding the shield and thrusting the spear, "'though each thrust is a bit wilder "'and a bit slower than the last. "'You aren't the only one like this. "'As you look down the line, you see... "'And then you feel it, "'an absence on your left side, "'where once there had been sweat and heat "'and pressure and motion.' You turn to look, your whole head following your vision, and while you are turned away, a body slams into your shield. You don't have time to process the fact that, to your left, men have fallen away, fleeing as the enemy begins their charge. Instead, you hold tight to your tower shield as the impact knocks you over, and even before hitting the ground, an axe hacks at your thin protection of reed and linen. You don't remember dropping your spear, but almost by instinct, the axe that you keep at your side, both in war and around the farm, leaps to your hand, and you slide out from under the shield, and with a wild blow, bite into flesh. You don't know if you killed him. You aren't even sure what body parts you hit but already you are up and running, fleeing without anyone telling you where to go. The walls of your small town have kept you safe since you were a boy, and is to them, you flee now. You don't look behind you, because you know the men of Larsa can run just as fast as you can. As you look around, you see chariots, not yours, running down men as they flee just like you, and the air is dirty with missile fire, a deadly hail that selects men by the god's whim for death. To the right of your position, there is much less chaos. The men haven't broken there yet, haven't realized that they should. The battle is lost, and they have no way of knowing until the wave of panic reaches them. You realize that your personal god intervened to protect you here, since those last men to flee will be cut down in the greatest numbers. Still you run, slowed by exhaustion and weary legs, protected by nothing but the fact that there are too many other men around you for the enemy to cut you all down quickly. Maybe you make it to the safety of the walls. Maybe you don't. History will forget you ever existed soon enough and the entire conflict will be buried in the sands of Mesopotamia, remembered only by the accidental recovery of a pair of letters your king sent to your general. Even the god of your family and the god of your city, for whom you've spent your entire life toiling and the entire day battling, will soon be completely forgotten and universally regarded by later people as pagan fictions. There were many battles in the Middle Bronze Age period, Each of them were unique and terrifying moments in the lives of those who experienced them. Even this episode touches on only a few of the common organizational elements of any fight, and much of that is uncertain reconstruction. And with all this, there still wasn't space for the two most important elements of Middle Bronze Age warfare, religion and siegecraft, though both of those will definitely feature in a future episode, perhaps when we get to the Kingdom of Mari. In any case, join me next week as we return to the historical narrative of the Isin-Larsa Superior in Mesopotamia, skimming over dozens of barely-remembered battles as history marches ever onwards. Thank you for listening.